Olive was one of seven children who grew up in Illinois as a Mormon. At age 14, in 1850, her family decided to join a wagon train led by James Brewster. His followers were called Brewsterites. Uh, Brewster split from the Mormon leadership in Salt Lake City and led families to a new life in Southern California. At least that was his hope. And after reaching some rough terrain near the end of their journey, Olive's father wanted to continue on and find a special place for just he and his family, even though they had heard that there were hostile Indians not far from there. The rest of the group stayed in uh, Maricopa Falls, which is now in Arizona. On February 18th, in 1851, near Yuma, Arizona, a group of Yavapai Native Americans approached Olive's family. They were asking for tobacco, guns, food, and Olive's father refused. So the Yavapai attacked the family with clubs and with knives, and they ransacked their supplies. Olive, 14, and her seven-year-old sister, Marianne, were spared and were taken away as captives, and they heard the groans of her dying mother as they were being taken off uh, away with the avapai. Olive's 15-year-old brother, Lorenzo, survived after being clubbed and left for dead, and Lorenzo was able to make it to a settlement and then returning back with some other people, discovered that his mother, his father, and four siblings had died, and he had two sisters missing. Olive and Marianne were held as slaves at a village near uh, the site of modern-day Congress, Arizona. Olive was in constant fear of her life as she and her sister were forced to forage for food and carry water, firewood, and other menial tasks. They were frequently beaten and mistreated. A year later, there was a group of Mojave Indians visited the Yavapai, and they traded two horses, three blankets, vegetables, and some beads for these two girls. And after being forced to walk hundreds of miles with the Mojave to a village. Uh, they settled in what is now Needles, California. The Mojave uh, leader, his wife, and daughter took these two white girls in. They befriended them and had a close relationship and treated them far better than how they were treated with the Avapai. The girls tended their own garden and they developed uh, developed a close relationship, especially with the uh, tribal leader's daughter, Topeka was her name. And as a mark to ensure that they would recognize each other in the afterlife, they did something that all the Mojave women did, is that they tattooed her with these lines along the chin. A hard famine 
came upon the tribe, and Marianne succumbed with many others of the Mojave tribe. Four years had elapsed uh, with the Mojave, and at the age of 19, and with some careful investigation, Olive was discovered. A Fort Yuma commander heard uh, about a white woman that was amongst this tribe. And after negotiations and a not-so-subtle threat from these authorities, Olive took a 20-day journey to Fort Yuma and was greeted, greeted by a cheering host of white people who welcomed her. Uh, within a few days, she was reunited with her brother, Lorenzo, and became married, married a rancher in Texas. There was a book written about her, and from those proceeds, she was able to go to school. And uh, actually, many other books were written about this experience. She traveled around the country lecturing about this. Uh, in fact, there's a town in Arizona named in her honor and it's called Oatman. Her name was Olive Oatman, and she is a relation to Buzz and Lynn Oatman here at CCC. Now, what makes the story noteworthy are the details of this real-life drama, but more so the characters involved, because we feel this sort of kinship with this woman who lived over 150 years ago, because we know Buzz and Lynn. What lessons could be learned about enduring hardship are found in this harrowing tale. And the same could be said of Luke's account in Acts 27, because there are many details fit within this chapter. Now, nautical details, various destination, a description of different weather patterns that cause us to ask, why is all this in the Bible? That doesn't sound very instructive. Now, besides testifying to the truthfulness of the story because of all these details, remember, Acts was written by a doctor. Dr. Luke was his name. It, it intrigues us because of the familiarity with Paul who we have learned about through the book of Acts. And he's one of our heroes of the faith. We also learn very much, just like we did with Olive Oatman, how a person of faith can act when literally facing the fiercest of storms. And that's what we find here in Acts 27. Verse 1 says, And when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now remember that Paul has been through a series of trials after he's been unjustly accused by a band of Jews. Uh, he appeals to Caesar in Rome that he would hear the case, hoping that he would get off. And so that's what has led to him on this boat for Rome. And he's given over to a revered Roman soldier named Julius, uh, who's to transport him for his final destination. Remember, he is 
basically traveling as a prisoner. Verse 2 says, And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. When you know that you are facing a serious crisis, many of us, I hope, can attest of what it's like to have close friends who are supportive, who are encouraging. That's what Paul had. Aristarchus was with Paul when he was dragged out of Ephesus in Acts 19. He was with Paul in Acts 20 when some Jews had plotted against the Apostle Paul. He is mentioned in Colossians 4.10 as being a fellow prisoner. Now just think what that term means. I'm going to stay with you even when you are arrested, even when that might mean trouble for me, I am willing to go to prison as your friend, with you, as they preach the gospel. You know, there are some friends who we will enjoy as things are going well. Praise and support come easy. But when opposition shows up, they disappear. Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner long-time supporter and friend of the Apostle Paul. I don't think we can ever expect all of our friends to be that way. My experience is you have a small group of people that will be that kind of friend. It's naive to think that all of your acquaintances will stick with you like that. It simply won't happen. I mean, most people can't stay together unless they know their friends are of the same political party, or they agree with them on masking or vaccinations or something else, right? I mean, God forbid that real persecution come, which is what Paul was facing. Paul arrives in Sidon. No, we don't know. We assume that he hadn't been there before. They greet him and minister to him because they know of who he is, of their common faith in Christ. The sweet fellowship of Christians is indeed soothing when our hearts are open, and you can find that anywhere. I've been to several countries, and I've experienced the sweet fellowship because of hearts coupled to Christ. It's really quite an amazing experience. And how, how cool it is also, consider this, that Julius, we don't know that he's a believer, we, we assume that he's not, as a Roman guard, he's kind to Paul. Now that probably says something about Paul's manner with his captors, to those who are outside the faith. I mean, he, he wasn't irascible, biting, or caustic. He didn't turn them off with his manner. That's pretty cool. And I wonder if that could appeal to us, the truth of that, as we look at social media 
at how divisive it is, even for Christians. Verse four says, and putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So verse 4 through 8 plot out a part of the route from Cyprus to Crete. And they're finding it difficult to sail because of the wind. And they pass, it says, to the lee of Cyprus. A lee is a, a shelter, and in this case, a sheltering side of this island. So it was advantageous for the sailors to enjoy the protection. Uh, could be mountains there near the uh, shore, But whatever it was, they were able to avoid some of the treacherous winds during this trek. And they changed ships at Myra. Now, the normal route would have been to sail north of Crete, as you'll see on the map. But the winds caused them to change course, and they end up on fair havens on Crete because they're seeking protection from the lee of Crete. Fairhavens is translated elsewhere, safe harbor. And the point is that this port served as protection on the south side of Crete. Verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because of the harbor, because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, just as a matter of note, they have already traveled 900 miles from Sidon to Fairhavens. And our text tells us it was a time of fasting. We know it was the Day of Atonement. This puts the date at about October 5th, A.D. 59. That means winter was around the corner. What does that mean? That is the most dangerous season to sail, and no sailor with half a sense would try to sail during the winter on the Mediterranean. Even though Fairhaven did not possess full winter provisions, Paul advises them to stay there for their safety. Paul felt they had a better chance of surviving on land with limited provisions than to take a chance and sail and end up at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Now, Paul was not speaking prophetically. He was not commanding. It was more of just a suggestion 
because of his own experience. And Julius instead listens to the pilot and the owner of the ship. Now, by owner, we know that this was then a private vessel, probably employed by Rome to take Paul to Rome. So the owner and pilot urge Julius to do what many men do, thinking you can arrive safely without any idea really knowing where your vehicle is going. They hope to reach Phoenix about 40 miles away. It reminds me of a trip that Janet and I and all of our kids were taking to Tennessee. Uh, This was before GPS. We had a map. It was at night. I looked at the map. I decided, I think I see a shortcut, and I was sure it was a shortcut. Janet wanted to stop for direction, but I knew that we could make it to Music City without the interruption. Instead, I came up on a dirt road that led us within 15 feet at the banks of a large river without a bridge. Janet kissed me and thanked me for being so prudent. (laughs) It reminds me of what one mountaineer said as he turned back from the challenge of climbing an Alaskan peak without the equipment that was adequate for icy conditions. He said, there are old mountaineers and there are bold mountaineers, but there are no old, bold mountaineers. Verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Kada. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. So, having a brief respite, they raised the anchor and hoped to sail to Phoenix. Now, what is called a northeaster, for our purposes, is simply like a hurricane, all right? And it shoved the ship off course toward this little island, Kada. The dinghy floating probably behind the boat was brought up and tied to the side. And Luke writes that they did this with difficulty, probably meaning that it was taking on water and it seemed nearly impossible because of the waves and the wind. In fact, the winds were so strong, they took ropes and tied it around the ship, fearing that it would come apart. And they feared they'd also be driven all the way to Libya in northern Africa to where sandbars called Sirtis existed. And as a result, they lowered the main sail, hoping to slow down and gain control. Since we were violently storm-tossed, 
They began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Violently storm-tossed. That was no exaggeration. They were being thrown around like a rag doll, and they were sure that their life was going to end. They wanted to make the ship ride higher on the water because they didn't want to take on any more water. So they started to throw personal cargo and even some of the ship's equipment to lighten the load. They threw it overboard. And the swells and the whitecaps became so high that the ship was about to be swamped, capsized. The storm cut off their view of the daytime and nighttime sky. The wind continued to blow, and they gave up all hope of living through this. It's a frightening story. It causes us to consider about the kind of storms that come our way, right? And the fact is, is that fear is gripping us and is gripping our culture. Pandemic, economic, and social upheaval. I mean, the, the fear is real. I mean, it's easy to say, well, you shouldn't fear, but that doesn't take away the anxiety. And I'm talking of believers, Christians. And people are looking for hope. I was meeting with someone this week about how we can address the problems in our poverty-stricken and racially estranged churches in Springfield. And everybody at the table agreed, the gospel is the only answer. We agreed on that. The gospel is the only answer. Social engineering is not the answer. A new political party in control is not the answer. The ingenuity of man can never fix the real problem, which is the inside of our hearts that creates us to be selfish, that creates this animosity with other people for whatever reason. How can you change the human heart? It only comes through the gospel. That's it. I mean, when our heart changes, we can genuinely love our neighbor. We don't have to be gripped with fear for our future because we have our destiny secured in the finished work of Christ. And I don't need to fear the worst. I heard recently an interview with Toby Mack, the former lead singer of DC Talk, who recently lost his son to a drug overdose. You can imagine the pain involved in that. And he talked about having basically an open hand to the things of earth and then gripping tightly to Christ. I like that picture. An open hand, house, family, spouse, money, investments, 
everything that this earth has to offer. Nothing wrong with those things, nothing using those things, nothing uh, wrong with taking advantage of those things, but to grip them, to fear losing them, to be desperate that life is over if I don't have these things, open hand. That's what he's learning. He said, I'm not there. (laughs) I struggle with this daily, moment by moment. I want my son, I'm learning this, an open hand, and then gripping Christ. Doesn't that pretty much sum up life on earth? We see a lot of problems in our world. I've been asked multiple times about, you know, what can you do about this national scene that we're in? And frankly, I don't, I don't see myself as changing a national scene, but I, I think that there are things that we can do as a congregation to maybe impact our community in some small way, and we start with this, loving our neighbor well. Love our neighbor, love our God. And I think there's somewhere that's written that you can do that, that those are the two greatest commandments. I don't see our job as trying to garner some clout as evangelicals and throwing our weight around. Now, there are people who do that, and that's fine, and they, and they can do that, and, and they're in position. God has placed them there, but I hope that they can do it with an open hand. God has not called me to do that. But it seems like when, when this evangelical movement tries to do that, that it negatively impacts the politics and the religion. Right? When we seek power and we see it as an answer. I think we influence by example, with a basin and a towel, with serving, loving our neighbor, serving our community. Why? Because the gospel is the only force that truly changes the human heart. And eyeball to eyeball, heart to heart, I can love, I can share the gospel. And only when the direction of the heart changes, we can see changes around us. I get that we wish for economic security, but none of that is permanent. I get that we want to gather resources, but that's not limitless. Political turmoil is high. Schools and jobs are interrupted And sometimes it takes the storms of life to open our hands and then to look to Jesus and grip with all of our life what he's offering us, what he has offered us. See him as our hope. Olive Oatman died at the age of 65 in 1903. Now, I don't know the state of her heart at the end of her life. We know that she got married, she adopted a baby girl, she lived in Texas, and I hope for her sake she found some peace and some healing and forgiveness. But here's what I do know. I've met a lot of hurting people over the years, and so have you. And maybe you're one of those. 
The fact is, all of us have been hurt. All of us have had our own tumultuous storms that we've had to deal with. And we carry with us wounds, past relationships, circumstances. And there's multiple responses to that. We can can curse God. We can deny his existence. I saw a documentary recently about Tony Campolo, Christian author and um, academic, and his son Bart. And his son Bart left the faith, no longer claims to be a Christian, and denies the existence of God after having been in ministry for a number of years. And one of the main things that kind of pushed him over the edge was the idea, how could there be a sovereign, loving God, and then you have the the death of a child or a pandemic or all these other things. It seems that God has the ability to do something about that, and why doesn't he? And it causes this chasm, it can, between people and God. Toby Mack explained it this way. He said, He still believes God is kind. And perhaps God's view of kindness is different than his and different than ours on earth. But he can hang his hat on the fact that his son is in heaven because his son had walked with Christ for a period of time, had some tough seasons. But he said, is that not kind of God to welcome my son in heaven? It is. Is. So we can deny God. Uh, you know what we can also do? We can keep ourselves protected from being hurt again. This kind of self protection has a way of kind of causing our heart to be hard. We refuse to get near anyone who has hurt us in the past. And some even refuse to have any close relationships again. And so we we position our hearts in such a position that we shove out forgiveness. We limit the healing. And our hearts become hard. And what we miss We miss some of the finer fruit that that restoration can bring. We miss many opportunities to love because you know why? Because we're too focused on our own self-protection. The Bible pinpoints this issue. In Proverbs 18.1, it says, whoever pulls away from others to focus solely on his own desires disregards any sense of sound judgment. I'm here to acknowledge to all of us that the hurt is real. But as a minister of the gospel, I'm also here to proclaim that Christ provides healing and he provides forgiveness. Forgiveness for our own hearts and he gives us the power to forgive others as well so that we do not have to walk around 
with this open wound, letting everybody know our side of the story. We don't have to do that. We can love. Open hand, open heart. Pray with me, will you?